Hey, health tech pigeons. Welcome back to the weekly podcast where we break down the health tech news so you don't have to. My name is Jessica Smith. I'm co-founder of Somex. And this week, as always, I'm delighted to be joined with our amazing producer, Adama. Say hi, Adama. You don't often say hi. Come on. Let me tempt you. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) She doesn't get the credit you deserve, you guys. And also my equally fantastic colleague, Beth. Hello. He was an account director with us at Somex too. <laughs> so, Belle, what have you been up to this week? What's been getting you excited? Well, as I just mentioned before the call, I come in calling live from Brewdog at Waterloo, which is not my usual location for a meeting on an, at 9am in the morning. But yeah, I'm in London for a few days. We've got our health tech podcast, the crossover you didn't know you needed event happening tonight. So very excited for that. Love that. I'm such a fan of a crossover. Uh, ever since I did uh, my guest appearance on the Health Tech podcast, when James was away, I keep offering to do it. And so far, he has not taken me up on the offer. So Rude. I will be back. I'm going to fight my way back into the studio. But in the meantime, I will be storming the stage this evening. We are actually recording this on Thursday morning for those who are listening. You'll hear it on Sunday um, or even, you know, Monday the week after. But yeah, I watch this space for some, yeah, wild videos of some strange person crashing the stage so they can get their 15 minutes of fame or 15 seconds before James maybe tackles me off stage and actually gets down to business talking to, of course, the wonderful Helen from Hertility and Dr. Curran Rajan as well, which will be a lot of fun. So we'll report back on that next week. Spent many an hour this evening packing goodie bags. (laughs) So I'm excited to share those with everyone and see some photos of everyone crucially wearing their Health Tech Podcast swag. And I was at the Health Tech X Summit yesterday, which was also great. We talked about actually some of the stuff that we are going to be discussing today on the podcast. And I hosted a couple of panels on telehealth. So on the first panel, I was joined by Newman and Cree where we established actually we're just going to stop talking about telehealth eventually because it is just a mechanism for how we deliver care. We're all used to using video consultations now, um, but actually there's really real untapped potential in using it beyond just primary care, which is where I know I'm used to using it um, and actually integrating it much better into health journeys, particularly for people who are experiencing chronic conditions and that kind of thing. And on my second panel, I was joined by... Google. I was joined by Euphonia and eConsult, and we were talking about how to navigate David and Goliath partnerships between big tech and innovators. And both Euphonia and eConsult have recently partnered with Google, and they were talking about what their experience of that had been like. We got down into the weeds talking about some of the red flags for partnerships and why sometimes it doesn't work out. So yeah, it was a lot of fun. Learned a lot, and uh, it was good to catch up with all the usual faces and some new faces too, um, I think marked the beginning of a very, very busy event season. Uh, Somehow, I think Swamex managed to be in three different locations all at once. Yeah. Yesterday, Daisy and Hugh were up at Het North chatting to lots of people there. And as you said, you were Venture CEO earlier in the week as well. So yeah, so much going on. Thank goodness for the leap year and the extra day to just squeeze. (laughs) that little bit extra into the health tech calendar it's my um i mean not that anyone on the podcast cares but it's my mother's sweet 16 today <laughs> leap year baby we love to see it oh amazing i hope she is having a party you should have invited her to the health tech podcast live we could have dedicated <laughs> it to her we've even got party bags so all the work is done 
<laughs> hey, mom, do you fancy the trip up from Cornwall for a panel? <laughs> On health tech. Well, without further ado, we'll, we will wait with bated breath to see whether Belle's mum does join us this evening. We'll report back. But <laughs> let's get into our first story of the week. So, tech funding news brings us a, another awesome funding announcement. We love a funding announcement, but we particularly love a funding announcement when it is a female-led company. So, Today, we are hearing that £6.2 million of grant share has been awarded to a company called Circa Data, which basically aims to build a diverse biomarker database. And they have been provided with the support by Innovate UK. Um, The article starts by explaining that People of European genetic ancestry represent 80% of the people in the genome-wide association studies, which when you consider the differences in outcomes for things like cancer, breast cancer, etc., there is not sufficient representation or not sufficient diverse representation in studies for to understand better disease characterization. And that is the challenge that Circa Data is looking to solve. I don't know if I've got this 100% right, but for anyone who's interested, Circa, I love to do a bit of interrogation of what a name means, but Circa stands for to seek. So this sounds like uh, the name comes from seeking data, which is very cool. But Belle, you have had a read of this one. What has got you particularly excited? Yeah, well, like you say, a great feel-good news story to start this week's episode. Um, Yeah, the female-founded UK company building the world's largest diverse biomarker database. As you said, at the moment, the majority of genome-wide association studies are including people from European descent, which means that those from different backgrounds are excluded, which, you know, impacts our understanding of the genomic drivers of disease and disease outcomes for these people. Um, I thought something else that was really interesting in the article, um, and we know that AI and um, genomic studies and things like this are used in lots and lots of drug development programs, but drugs formulated with biomarker selection are twice as likely to proceed to clinical trials as those without. So having non-diverse data sets here means that we are directly impacting these therapies that actually go to clinical trial and then meaning that we've got this big data gap at the clinical trial stage. And historically, this is something that we we have in lots of things. We know that medical studies haven't historically been done in diverse populations. But as a result, we end up with therapies that are less, or clinical trials that are less efficient, therapies that are less safe, and we end up with increased health inequality. So um, what's amazing about this is they are directly impacting those three things. So yeah, I know we've worked with lots of different people who are trying to make clinical trials better. Um, that's a much bigger question than it than it might seem. It's not just about p- recruiting people into clinical trials, but actually this comes before that stage. And it's like, what's the data that gets us to the drug that then gets us to that clinical trial point? So I think it'll help us deliver really, really great clinical trial and drug development outcomes. Yeah. I mean, we love talking about health equity and diversity and its importance in in healthcare here on the podcast and it's something that that comes up often and actually it's something that we 
try and lever into you as much of our discussion as possible because there are lots of studies and research that come across our desk as we're curating and editing the newsletter and even considering what we talk about on a week to week basis on the podcast. And as is very often the case, when you go in and actually look at the study methodology or the the demographic makeup of the um, study cohort, you find quite quickly that actually it is not a diverse group of people who have been involved in the study itself. And that always becomes incredibly frustrating because the conclusions that you can extrapolate from the results of that data are so, so limited. And, you know, I know that James and I have waxed lyrical on multiple occasions about our frustration where like you see an amazing headline and then you interrogate the data and you're like, why are we still talking about this? Why are we still asking for there to be clear parameters over diversity and having diverse study participants included within clinical research it should be a non-negotiable and it should we you know we'd love for it to be a non-negotiable for the media in terms of what they're reporting and the studies that they're reporting on because ultimately is it really a story if you have done a clinical trial on and I'm being glib here but on a cohort of 20 white middle-aged men no no, it's not. They don't represent the global population. And, you know, don't get me wrong, there are, there are some instances where being having specificity around your study cohort is, is really important. Um, however, that's the exception, not the rule here. And I just, for me, seeing an, an organisation like this, a company like this, genuinely really solving that problem, it means that organizations when they're doing research whatever kind of research they're doing they don't have an excuse because they have the expertise they have the reach and the network by tapping into people who are doing this work for them they need to they need to make sure that they are accessing those opportunities and so like massive kudos to to Elsa who is the founder of this company because I think it's it really is just such important work and One of the things I also just want to touch on is a conversation that I've had this week, actually with James off the back of a podcast he recorded around, um, it's actually about female representation in life sciences, but the guest that he spoke to quoted a study around basically how we know that only 2% of all VC funding goes to women, which is not great. There was a study done by INSEAD who at the business school, for anyone who doesn't know, that basically took pitches and uh, they were pitched to a panel of, um, I don't exactly know who the panel were and I haven't looked in, into enough detail, but a panel of, I'm assuming, investors. Um, and only basically the the names of the founders and the names of the supporting investor were changed and what it showed and this is so such an explicit demonstration of unconscious bias and how not tackling these issues in a meaningful way has such a trickle down effect it showed that where you had a female founder who was supported by a female investment uh, you were significantly less likely to get follow-on funding than if you were a male founder with um, a male investor supporting you. And yeah, basically their pitches were rated less favorably and the um, 
the female entrepreneur was perceived as less competent. And it, the article said that the problem that arises when a female investor funds a female startup is that other investors may assume she only did so because of her gender, dismissing the possibility that the entrepreneur possesses the competence needed to lead a successful startup. The fact that a woman and her backers share the same gender is used as an excuse to explain away a woman's achievements. And as a result, the future investment becomes more difficult to obtain. That absolutely blew my mind that actually, you know, that that 2%, the the issues we're seeing for the 2% of funding that is actually being received by women is being compounded. And that is having an impact, therefore, even further on the success of the companies who are female-led. And that is why, you know, this is like quite new information to me. And I think we talk about that 2% of funding a lot, but I had never heard this specific piece of research. That is why when I see incredible women doing incredible things and receiving funding, that should be shouted about. That needs a spotlight drawn on. And that's not to say that this research is indicative of every every situation where a woman is going for investment, but it's really frustrating. And I just want to make sure that we don't stop talking about this and we're shining a light on the challenge so that where people who are coming to the table and you know diversity is intersectional it's not just about gender it's about so much more than that that we are creating a platform where we're driving forward that debate and just not allowing the conversation to go quiet because I think if when we do that's when you know companies don't get the funding that they deserve to get because people become complacent it becomes a conversation and people aren't active and so I'm saying this because I think it's connected to seeing, you know, an incredible business with, you know, this amazing grant funding that also deserves to go on and have so much more success. And I would hate to think that this research that I came across earlier this week could be a factor in anybody's fundraising journey and stops us seeing genuinely impactful solutions that could have make a difference on a global scale, not reach their potential because of unconscious bias and intersectional lack of intersectional diversity in decision making rooms so that's my rant of this week um and as i say i just want to massively shout out what this company are doing and elsa if you're listening we would love 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 to get you on to chat more about what it is you're doing because this is not a conversation that's going away and um yeah it's really really awesome to see a genuinely impactful solution that's tackling this huge issue in data that like just isn't going away yeah just one thing before we move on to the next story because I think you've raised a really interesting point there but you know anyone who has a keys of look across the health tech landscape or any sort of technological innovation diverse perspectives create diverse impactful technology if the same group of people are the ones getting the funding and creating solutions then they're not going to be representative of the needs and wants of the people that they serve which is everyone and so it's really important that we we let these different innovations get funded and and move forward because without it we get solutions that just don't help us and it's just it's just really, really sad that that is a statistic that's still taking place in this day and age. It's 
it's similar. It reminds me of that university study. Well, I think it was a university study a while ago where um, people changed their names. Um, It was people of ethnic minorities that were struggling to get interviews and they changed their name on their CV to a more sort of British slash white sounding name and got far more success at interview. Like it's just this horrible unconscious bias taking place and it's stifling innovation and stifling really, really impactful technologies and the people designing them from doing cool things. And that was the perfect segue into story number two of today, which is healthcare AI, the potential and pitfalls of diagnosis by app. It starts by saying that if health is a fundamental human right, healthcare delivery must be improved globally to achieve universal access. And I think also this article speaks to a conversation that we had as a team last week where we were interrogating what generative AI means in healthcare and some of the potential consequences of that. But but what was it that really stood out to you about this one? And what did what did you learn when you were reading it through? So yeah, this article talks about how one of the biggest barriers to care is lack of access to healthcare professionals. So if you live in a remote environment or you just live in an environment where you've got lots and lots of people looking for the same care, AI emerges as a solution to help get you that care more quickly than you might if you were waiting for a face-to-face consultation. That's really impactful and potentially very empowering for people, but it's really important we keep patient safety in mind. What stood out to me from this article, and like you say, we did a workshop internally about it um, with Keith Grimes recently at our SOMEX team day, is that large language models, which I'm sure is a word that everyone's hearing all the time now with generative AI and things like that, but they're powering these sort of chat-based technologies where people can get diagnosis by app as per the title and access that, um, that kind of medical point of view quicker without an actual medical professional at the end. What stood out to me and what I think is really important and definitely ties into the conversation we've just said is that when we were chatting to Keith recently, one of the things which genuinely blew my mind and but makes so much sense is that these large language models, we don't know what data they're trained on. So if we're trying to ensure that we have diverse data sets and diverse viewpoints, we firstly do not know whether that is the case. Secondly, which leads to the the idea that it's probably not the case is that we know, and um, Keith shared with us a paper that showed this in a really, really stark graph, is that LLMs, um, which is a tongue twister if ever there was one, tend to offer advice which falls into stereotypes where they either under or over-diagnose people of particular gender or ethnicity. They, They are the kind of demographics that this paper focused on, which is obviously something which is potentially dangerous. So if we're relying on these large language models that we don't know what data it trains on, but your particular ethnic and gender background means that that technology might diagnose you in a particular way, that means you're not necessarily getting the right diagnosis and treatment for you. Regulatory kind of approaches to this, I'm very, very intrigued as to how that goes. I'm sure lots of people have lots of ideas, but it's a huge, it's just a mind-boggling exercise, really. It's this unknown data set of billions of things. How do we possibly regulate that? 
The other thing that I thought was really, really nice here is that the article really paints the picture of the importance of that doctor-patient relationship. So whilst AI has many, many advantages, one of which is it's very, very good at pattern spotting and lots of medical diagnosis is spotting patterns in people's medical history and things like that. What it cannot do is build that trusted doctor-patient relationship. And where this is so important is where you might have emotionally charged scenarios or patients. And actually, it's that case of a long-standing, trustworthy relationship that allows doctors to break through any sort of communication gap that might arise if a patient is struggling to interact with another technology or another doctor. So yeah, really, really interesting use cases here. And AIs, I mean, it's going to continue to transform the world and we'll see it used in more and more technologies. But it opens lots of questions as to how can we regulate this? How can we show a diverse data set that doesn't undersell um, what people need and meets their challenges and particular needs? And then how do we also ensure that it supports doctors to create that strong patient-doctor relationship and not make patients feel even further disconnected from their own healthcare? Yeah, I think you raise a really interesting point about how AI spots patterns and how a big part of a clinician's role is by spotting patterns based on what you're observing, medical history, um, lots of lots and lots of different factors. I guess one of the things that I'm particularly intrigued by is that how do we trust the assumptions that AI has come to based on the patterns it's seen because we don't understand necessarily where those assumptions are come have come from and sometimes i guess if we're we're like all in 100% fully trusting the assumption that a generative ai technology has put forward to us without it getting like I guess almost like checked or validated by a clinician, which is what we were talking about um, in a previous episode with Dom about what they're doing at Tortoise and how ultimately they're using these they're using large language models to create a clinical co-pilot, which allows a doctor to have a more valuable conversation directly with a patient rather than focusing on like typing up everything they said. And the important thing about that is that it rather than like any action is validated, any notes are checked, all by a human being, a clinician. And I think that there's nuance and context that doctors and human beings perhaps pick up that maybe are a part of that decision-making process. And don't get me wrong, actually, Keith showed us some really interesting graphs around how the accuracy of uh, you know, generative AI technologies in reaching certain assumptions and certain diagnosis and all of these kinds of things. But I think there's also something about spotting a pattern and making an incorrect conclusion in terms of, I guess, that what it is that's connecting those points in the pattern. Um, and, you know, maybe it's the causation. Um, and I guess, like, for me, how do we, if we don't know if we don't fully understand the black box, how do we challenge those assumptions, I guess? Particularly when we've got data that's showing us the accuracy of it. I guess it, I guess the long and short of it, what I'm trying to say is I think that by botting patterns and reporting insights that 
and assumptions that haven't fully been tested means that in some cases we can be perpetuating stereotypes instead of breaking them. Um, where data is not of sufficient quality, perhaps, or the pattern is correct, the assumption is wrong. And I don't know how we challenge that. And I think, I suspect it's in part putting in place those um, checkpoints like Dom and the team at Tortoise do in, in their process for how they're um, scaling their technology in a clinical setting. Um, but I wonder how also that can be um, factored into the regulatory process for technologies as they're being, you know, approved to make sure that they do have those checkpoints in there before they get to the point where you've got, you know, use at scale and, and damage could potentially be done. Um, Absolutely. I think one of the interesting things there as well is exactly like you said, there is so much nuance in that medical decision making. And a lot of it is based on what the patient is not telling the doctor rather than what they are as well. And if you're relying on typing stuff out into a chatbot, that's not necessarily going to pick up that nuance where people maybe feel embarrassed about saying a certain symptom or they don't deem it important or connected. They might have two completely disconnected symptoms, which when a doctor is able to look at them all, is able to diagnose something, but the patient doesn't think X is worth raising because they're here to see doctor about Y. Um, so it's that it's the things you don't communicate as well, which is the kind of interesting challenge, I think, um, and where doctors are able to use that history of their relationship with a patient to sort of fill in those gaps and know what they what they're comfortable saying, what they're really saying. Yeah, you're right, because so much of what is communicated is not verbal. And it was that that links really nicely to the discussion I was having with Socrates from Newman and uh, Calla from Cree yesterday about telehealth and those kinds of consultations where like uh, is there some nuance in the skill set that's required when you're engaging with a patient via video versus in person? Because I think you have to work a lot harder in that level of communication because so much of what is said is unspoken. The body language, the the ticks, you know, you can't see what people are doing with their hands below the screen. I don't mean that in any perverse way, just to be really clear. But like, I, I, I'm like, I'm a fidgeter. Things like that can be indicative of something else or, you know, if you're thinking about mental health, for example, someone who perhaps is self-harming, those kinds of self-harm injuries might not be obvious or that like that person might not volunteer that information verbally when you're sat in a room with them. That's information that you can pick up on an additional context that you've you've gathered from your visual interaction with them your physical in visible interaction with them, I guess that you might not necessarily see on that level. So I think, you know, it will also be interesting to see how, like, how do we bring in that that level of information there as well? Um, but I think ultimately we have to start somewhere and, and being able to harness the verbal data to be used in this way is an amazing, amazing first step. And actually, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great start point um and is far more data than we, we've ever had previously and i think where that is being used in parallel with a person i think certainly goes a long way to building trust and confidence that the additional con context and nuance is getting picked up on so completing our story arc for the week 
We have a story from MedCity News headlined Driving Accessibility in Health Tech, Three Things Founders Should Consider for Thoughtful AI Implementation in 2024. So maybe this story is going to answer some of the questions that Belle and I just had in that previous conversation, the story we were talking about, the potential and pitfalls of diagnosis by app and healthcare AI. So in summary, those three things cover ethical AI and bias mitigation, which I think we've talked about a little bit already today, probably quite a lot. Cultural competence in user experience design, something we've not talked about, we will come to it, and community engagement and partnerships. So, well, talk us through practically what startup founders should be doing to address these three key areas. Yeah, so I thought nice, quite nice to finish with some actionable, practical tips for people, um, which they can bring forward into their health tech innovation. Exactly what you need when you're listening to this podcast. So number one is essentially how do we reduce bias in algorithms? And we do that by ensuring that we've got obviously diverse data sets, we've got diverse teams creating those algorithms, and we've got some sort of setup for bias detection. For example, they suggest in the article using predictive modeling to see how the data works through and is there any bias inherent in that. Um, So that's the sort of technological part of this innovation which is how do we actually ensure that we don't have bias and where it does arise, we can detect it very quickly and have a mechanism to then avoid that. Number two and three, I'd say are quite linked, if I'm honest. So number two is using diverse voices at the point of UX design. So that is when you're thinking who are users going to be, you bring a diverse group of people together to say, here are our needs, here are our challenges, here's how we historically um, use technologies and how we'd like to, so that you're ensuring that you create impactful technology that works for lots and lots of people. And then number three um, is sort of the follow-up to that really, which is collaborating with the communities the tech will serve. So this is kind of post UX design, but still in the feedback stage where you're just gathering lots of input and feedback to really grasp the unique challenges and opportunities that different communities will will need. Um, And then by doing that, and that collaboration point is so important and speaks to lots of things we've already mentioned, we are building trust with those communities so that they know that one, the technology serves them, two, they trust that technology, three, the technology is fair, and four, that it's ultimately useful. And we're not just developing a technology for the sake of it. We're actually doing something which will impact people's lives. So I think a really sort of nice, nice kind of overall summation is just include diverse point voices at every single point of your technology and um, innovation design. Um, and with that, you can't really go much wrong if you're ensuring that at every stage you're putting the checks and balances in place to seek out bias and where you see it to stamp it down. Lovely. And I think to uh, to coin a phrase in the words of the legendary Elvis, to summarise, I would say <laughs> a little less conversation, a little more action, please, is the... <laughs> It's the top and the bottom of that one. Pigeon title. We've got it. Yeah, there we go. There we go. I think though, maybe not less conversation. I think the conversation is important. We need to keep those conversations going and we will certainly continue to have these conversations here on Pigeon. Um, But it's always encouraging, exciting, 
to see it translate into action. And I think that's the key thing that often we spend so much time talking about. Lots of these concepts, these challenges, these frustrations that we don't actually take the time to put those discussions into practice or we think that somebody else is going to do it for us um and i think you know it's a great opportunity for us all regardless of you know even with what we do and you know running events and communications for healthcare companies understanding what our responsibility is in helping move that needle and actually what what is within our power and locus of control and sometimes that locus of control is is very small but there is always one so um yeah, there's just so much food for thought this week and a beautifully curated newsletter. So snaps to Adama for choosing some awesome stories this week and giving us the inspo to rant, rave and get excited. And thank you so much, Belle, for joining me this week and giving us the tea on the best stories in health tech this week. See you all next week. <laughs>